least sing a song at the end of the service this morning and, um, and to be able to just respond to the message for a moment with a word of encouragement and a, and a song of encouragement for us to sing together before we leave. Last week, we've been in First and Second Timothy most of the year this year. And last week, because of Paul's mention in Second Timothy 4, 6 of, of himself as a drink offering, we've just kind of pivoted into the New Testament for a few weeks this morning. The, the, the word drink offering is a very Old Testament-ish word. Um, and so we, we talked about that last week, explained what, a little bit about what the drink offering was, and, and just used it as a launching point to say for a couple of weeks we're going to turn our attention to the Old Testament uh, before then uh, returning to, to 2 Timothy and finishing our study on being the church from First and 2 Timothy. So today, and I plan on the next two weeks... Um, October 29th, and then what would that be? November 6th, I guess. Uh, to, to focus on some Old Testament um, passages. Um, talked last week about the value of the Old Testament. Um, so, so I want to focus on some Old Testament passages. And this is just, if I'm really honest, it's, it's been things that have rolled, rolled around in my heart and mind for a while. The time of year, the, the, the calendar seemed to say this, was the, this would be a, a convenient time to do this. And so I want to share with you some, some, uh, some thoughts from the Old Testament, what it has to teach us about three or four different topics. Um, uh, this morning I want to do that uh, uh, with one specific topic. So let me start with two quick considerations, uh, just some things to think about for a second. Um, take this kind of lightheartedly, just use it as a, as a moment to, to just kind of smile to yourself. It's kind of predictable, but, um, but let's just start with a couple considerations. Um, how many of you have ever found yourself struggling to explain Labor Day to your children? What is Labor Day? What do we celebrate on Labor Day? Yeah. We, I mean, it sounds very simple, right? We, we do celebrate laborers. The whole labor movement in the, in the I guess, the early uh, first half of the, of the 1900s, um, uh, it was not until, I think, the 1950s that Labor Day became a national holiday. But it was focusing on uh, celebrating the work of laborers that had built this country. Um, the place this stands out to me is the road system. I've said this repeatedly. I just marvel at the road system. It's unlike anything anywhere in the world. There's no place else in the world that has the road system that we have. It's just incredible. Uh, and somebody had to cut trees, <laughs> build tunnels, blaze paths. I mean, it's just, for as short of a time as this country has been here, to have the kind of infrastructure we have is unbelievable. And there was not a thing that was glamorous about the construction of any of it. It was just grit your teeth and do some hard work today. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing what has been accomplished. September 5th this past, uh, this year, was Labor Day. What do we celebrate November 24th? What's Thanksgiving about? Not a trick question. Go ahead, somebody. What's that? Thanking God, for Thanking God for the harvest. Everybody knows kind of historical, historically the context of it, right? We think a lot about pilgrims, right? The, the first harsh, hard winters that were endured here and, and that uh, with, with many deaths, the, those that survived and made it through to, to the... Uh, to the spring and then had a successful harvest, wanted to celebrate and give thanks for, for what God had made possible for them, right? Thanksgiving. All right, what's December 25th? What do we celebrate at Christmas? What's that? The birth of Christ, right? The birth of Christ. Uh, never mind the fact that it's almost a sure bet that he didn't wasn't born anywhere near December 25th, but we have a day on the calendar that we remember his birth, okay? Um, so 
What's Halloween? What's that? Anna's birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. Quite an auspicious day. No. Reformation Day. All Hallows Day. Okay. Uh, All Hallows Day. Right? All, yes, All Hallows Eve. Yes, All Hallows, All Hallows Day. Yeah, All Hallows Eve. Um, uh, so, um, I, am, I am not going to do a big thing on Halloween, um, but uh, by the way, it is interesting that Wikipedia lists Halloween as a Christian holiday. Just interesting, right? Um, and, and there are some church traditions for whom uh, All Hallows' Eve is a big deal. Uh, it, it begins a period of time of remembering deceased saints, people who have died in Christ. Um, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, an attempt by a Christian concept to take over something <laughs> that, that was already a concept that was being practiced that maybe had some not-so-pleasant roots to it, right? So, um, just a question to ask, why would we as Christians, what, what celebration would we be doing on Halloween? Uh, it's a question. Um, here's the second question, do Satanists celebrate Christmas? If you, uh, if you cared to, if you Google, do Satanists celebrate Christmas, one of the top hits will be uh, 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 a website devoted to explaining Satanism to people. And they will tell you, Satanists are notorious for their independent-mindedness. In other words, what one Satanist does can be completely different from another one, and what one group does can be completely different from another one. So you can't take what any of them says as a doctrine of Satanism, because it just doesn't seem to have a doctrine. Um, regardless, you'll, you'll see explanations of how Satanists view uh, Christmas Day. But it is interesting that here in Dillsburg, um, uh, not Satanists, but uh, atheists insisted that if we were going to have a manger on the public square, that there should also be a sign that says Happy Festivus. And so for the last Five, six, seven, I forget how it started, time flies, so if I say five years, it's probably been ten. Um, but for the last number of years, there's a happy Festivus sign, which is just kind of a, hey, we're human beings and humans enjoy holidays, so just have a holiday and enjoy the holidays, right? Um, uh, uh, but it's kind of that, that, that atheist reminder that, hey, we don't believe in this, but we'll celebrate, right? We'll have, we'll have a celebration. Um, I'm saying all this because, you know, when you, when you drive around town these days, you can't help but notice all things dark and macabre and, and uh, spooky and scary and... You know, very few of them are, because it's all very cartoonish, right? Um, I do remember a couple places that I, I uh, uh, there's a couple, couple places, old kind of historic buildings in, in Dillsburg where uh, in the darkness of night, you, they had something either stuck on the windows inside that made it look like someone was looking at you. <laughs> it was kind of, That's a little spooky, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. But, but... The, the fact of the matter is that all of these things that we see happening around us, as cartoonish as they are, um, are both a sort of hiding and a reminding of the fact that evil's real. The cartoonish side of it might, might kind of make us want to say, ah, it's all just a big joke, have a candy bar, right? But the reality is, evil is evil, and it's real, right? It's actually real. I'd like to take a look at evil for a few minutes this morning, hopefully end with a word of encouragement today. 
But I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to take a look at what the Bible teaches us about evil. Um, what you choose to do with this or how you believe this applies to your family, here's what you're going to find out. I will forbid nothing. Not that I could forbid anything anyways, but I will not make any kind of declarations that way. Um, uh, in fact, at the end, you, you might walk away saying, um, man, it actually sounds like there's a variety of ways of approaching a subject like this, and I think there probably is a variety of ways. But we had really better focus on, on something that guides the decisions that we make and why we make them. And I want to focus on that this morning. So let's just take a, a, quick, a quick run through what the Bible teaches us about evil. I want to start with the Old Testament, obviously, since, um, since, since talking about the value of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has some significant things to tell us about evil. So, so let's start with Old Testament teaching on evil. Um, first of all, the Old Testament teaches us about the origins of evil. Where did it all come from? How did it all start? How did evil get into this world? There's several key passages that we need to look at. So let me start with these. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In these two chapters, there are words spoken by the prophets to uh, pagan kings. In Isaiah, it's the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel, it's the king of Tyre. Um, but you cannot help, and the, 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 the church has, has dealt with this for centuries, right? You cannot help, but as you're reading that pass, the, these two passages, recognize that as the writer was being inspired by the Holy Spirit to give a message to actual kings in those days, he was also telling us something about evil rulers, and in fact, one evil ruler in particular. In these passages, the descriptions that are given of these kings go beyond anything that you can ascribe to a mere mortal king. And, and the church has recognized in these passages the likelihood that the prophets had, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, moved into a place either aware or unaware to them in which they were describing Lucifer, describing the origins of the great evil ruler. They viewed the king of Babylon or the king of Tyre as evil rulers because they were opponents of God's people. But in doing that, they were, they were wandering into territory as led by the Holy Spirit that caused them to describe where it was that the people of God got all of their opposition from. The ruler of this world, the one that opposes the work of God and the people of God. And so in these, in these passages uh, describing these ancient kings, it seems that the prophets describe the creation and original greatness of the angel Lucifer. By the way, his actual role as created by God is not exactly known, but there are some interesting things about him that make you wonder. There, there, are, there are many, um, uh, many Christian writers that have, um, that have suggested that Satan had a sort of priestly function in the kingdom of God originally. Some get even more specific and say that he was the worship leader of heaven because these passages describe the instruments with which he was created, the musical instruments that, that seem to be connected to the abilities that Lucifer had. His his extreme beauty, his extreme greatness, his skill in things like music. And so it also then describes to us how, how this being so great became so full of himself, and really it reveals to us not only his, his, his original sin, but the ultimate source of all sin, and that is pride. It's that self-orientation that says, I will do what I want, I will have what I want, even if it means I have to defy the Most High. Please understand that at, at its root, every sin a human being ever commits is, is the surface manifestation of something deeper within us that says, 
I will have what I want in the moment. I will do what I want in the moment. I will not submit to the will of God in this. I will not be Christ-like in this. I will indulge what I want, whether it's anger, whether it's bitterness, whether it's, it's, it's greed, whether it's lust. It doesn't make a difference what the manifestation is. At its root, we human beings have a core problem. And it is capital S, capital E, capital L, and capital F. It's self, right? It's that I will have what I want. This was the great sin of Satan. I shall be like the Most High. I will be his equal, right? I will have what I want. And so we have, we have in this teaching of who Lucifer was, we have this, this revelation of his great sin, this pride and a fall that came through his desire to be God's equal. Well, from there, uh, the origins of evil. We move into Genesis chapter 3, which obviously in the order of what happens in the scripture comes first. But we see how sin comes into this world. How it is that this once great angelic being, Lucifer, has now become Satan and steps into a form on planet Earth in which he seeks to enlist other rebels. He seeks to promote evil on planet Earth. And so we have this original pair of human beings. Let me just pause here for what I didn't intend to do this. Just three seconds, really, it's not three seconds. Let me just do this really fast. I think it's important for us to at least acknowledge a, 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 a few things. We, we, for, for some, the, the book of Genesis, those first three chapters, need to be read as a history and scientific explanation of how the creation happened. I think the more important thing in those chapters is to recognize the, the, the order with which God created the heaven and the earth. That is the purpose for which all of this was, was brought into being. Um, if, if, you, if you Google, uh, if you go to YouTube and just look for videos on creations and origins, you'll find Christians that come down all over the place. There are literal young earth creationists. The earth is no, no older than six to 7,000 years old. You'll find others that take a different position uh, on the subject. I, I think the thing that is important, the thing that is vital, is to pick out in these passages, to recognize in these passages the, the, the meanings, the, 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 the principles that God is intending to teach us. They are things like human beings don't come into existence by accident. They do not. It is a creative act of God for, for there to be a living spirit within man that endures forever. That doesn't happen by any act of evolution. Here's why I think it's important to talk like this. Your children are going to run into, at some point, super intelligent, well-trained people that can make a strong case for evolution. Okay? You can either become an expert in that field, or you can shrug your shoulders and you can say something like, I know what the Bible teaches, and what it tells me is human beings did not become human beings because they evolved from Neanderthals. Whatever happened, it was a distinct creative act of God when he put a spirit in man and made him what a human being is. Oh, and by the way, when God creates something, it doesn't become something else by evolutionary means. God created everything and it, re and, it, and it replicates after its own kind, right? These are important ideas. Why? Because scripture teaches us that once sin comes into the world, sin passes down from human being to human being. Why? Because, because we reproduce after our own kind. And if fallen human beings reproduce, they reproduce fallen human beings. That's what we reproduce. By one man, sin enters the world. It's important that we recognize these big themes and that we uphold them, okay? I, 
I abs- this, is, this may upset some. I believe there is room for Christians to have legitimate questions about whether or not Genesis was intended to teach a, a, a sort of scientific or historical account of exactly how old the earth is. It's more important to look at this and say, here's the things that, that we know God was revealing to us. The foundations of, of, of the earth, the, the, the creative acts of God, the ways that God made the earth, the purposes for which he made, these are non-negotiables. These are things that we cannot back down from, that we must uphold. We have to understand the origins of sin. We have to understand, this will be for a future message, that God created male and female. There are actual battles in our day that we have to be able to stand up for. And it becomes, it becomes less than helpful for us to fight battles that at best are secondary when there are battles that are primary that need to be dealt with. Let me say it one more way. I would urge, I would urge our families in this congregation this way. Don't fight unnecessary battles that can create a crisis of faith for your children in the future. Fight the battles that matter. Fight the battles that matter. Make the primary ones the primary ones. I'm going to come back to this in a future, in a future message in the next couple of weeks. But keep the primary ones primary. Know where the battle lines are drawn. Understand what it means to fight for the authority of Scripture. Know what that means, right? Know what that means. And, and then uphold what God has said. All right. I'll come back to that with a little more explanation in a couple weeks. Here's where, where we see Satan affecting the world, bringing sin into this world. And, and what happens when sin comes into this world? Through a series of subtle hints and questions, Satan succeeds in tempting Eve and then Adam falls, and the result is this. The result is the world as we see it. Humanity broken and creation damaged. It's what it is. So, hey, just real quickly, how many broken people do we have in the room? Come on now. I want a good hearty amen. amen. The fall touched everything. There is nothing pure as the wind-driven snow. The the fall has touched it all. Evil has come into this world. Now, we haven't solved every question. There's plenty of questions as far as why, how did God allow this, why did God allow this, but at least we know where evil comes from, okay? The second thing to notice from the Old Testament is the prohibition against evil. It's prohibition. We, We briefly saw its origins. Let's look briefly at its prohibition. I want to read this to you. Um, specifically because it suggests a couple thoughts that are incredibly important, I believe. In Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 9, here's what you read. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, obviously he's talking to the Jewish people, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That is, offers a child as a sacrifice. One who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft. Or one who interprets omens or is a sorcerer. Or one who casts a spell. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Please notice how complete this list is. Sometimes I come across this list in Scripture, a list like this in Scripture, where there's a a succession of words that describe a, 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 a number of things, and I think to myself, well, what other ones can I think of that weren't included in the list? Okay, you ever done that? And, and immediately, this is the way I understand these lists. The, the question I ask myself would be, how long of a list would God have to make for us to get the point? 
Does he have to use every word that could possibly be used to describe occult practices for us to get the point? You don't have anything to do with the occult. I mean, listen, if you, if you, walk, if you walk into, into uh, Target today and you see a Ouija board, hey, I'm so glad that Deuteronomy didn't list the Ouija board. <laughs> Praise God, right? I mean, how many ways does he have to, to say it before we get the idea? There are practices that were forbidden to God's people. Why? Because there's a real realm of evil, and you and I are not supposed to tinker with it. We're not supposed to play games with evil, right? Evil is actually a real thing. In other words, the list would be something like this. At the end of it, P.S., I want you to have no involvement with evil. Right? It's, it's, it's one of those things that, that listen, I, um, the Bible is long. You want to read it through, cover to cover in a year? You're going to have to read three or four chapters a day to read the whole thing in a year. If he had made lists that included every word that could possibly be used, it would be way long, Okay? But he, he provides us enough to say something like, you know, I'm going to compliment your intelligence as creatures made in my image. If you want to rationalize something and say, because I didn't include it in the list, then that's on you. But when I give you a list, you get the point, right? You get the point. Um, God here provides a prohibition. By the way, it's a concept that carries over into the New Testament. All right, last, let me just mention this real quickly, and then we're going to finish in the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us what the sentence was for participating in evil. And it really was not pleasant. It was a capital offense. All right, I have to do this again. How many of you are hot in here? Okay. Um, I know we've turned this on. Are the fans on? Yeah? Okay. Maybe one degree down, if possible. Can I make that request? Anybody who wants to, just those things back there in the back, hit the button down, one degree. Because you're going to go to sleep and I'm going to pass out. Um, all right. Um, it's, uh, it's sentence. Listen, the sentence was death. Can I just say that briefly? The sentence was death. That was the sentence. So Leviticus 20, verse 27, uh, is, is interesting because it sentences to death any one of God's people who engage in any kind of occult practice. If you join the nations that you're coming into in some occult practice, some form of witchcraft, you're one of God's people you're to be taken out and stoned to death. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing pretty about it. It doesn't feel civil. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel nice in any way. The point, however, was you have to get rid of this cancer. You cannot allow it to continue. You can't allow it to spread. It must not be present in my people. If it comes in, you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it decisively. You have to deal with it radically. You kill it. You get rid of it totally. That was the Old Testament sentence. Now, by the way, um, that, was, that was Leviticus. If you stay in Deuteronomy 18, the passage that I just read, one of the things you'll notice is this. One of the things that we struggle with is the fact that God told his people to kill the nations that they were coming to conquer in the promised land. It seems very unenlightened of God to do that. Now, this would be part of a very, very long discussion, and I don't have time for all of it this morning. But I want to point out at least one thing. Part of the reason why a death sentence hung over these people was for this. All the way back in Abraham's day, God had said, someday you and your descendants are going to have this land. But he said to Abraham, not yet. Not yet. 
because their iniquity is not yet full. That is, they haven't sinned enough for me to sentence them all to death. They haven't gone that far yet. Okay? And, and for something like 400 years, God allows evil in these lands to continue uncorrected. Children being offered in sacrifices. Moral practices. These were some of the most degenerate societies known to man. Witchcraft in abundance. And finally, God says, when you're going to go in there, just wipe this earth clean. Wipe it clean. Get rid of everybody there. It sounds awful, but we have to understand there was a lot of wickedness that needed to be removed. And, and specifically, one of the things that God was concerned about was, I don't want them to influence you with their evil practices. So it wasn't just a death sentence for one of God's people to be involved in these practices. It was actually a death sentence over these foreign nations that were being conquered by Israel because of the abundance of evil that was present in these places. Notice that their sentence was no more severe than Israel's. If one of God's people had participated in those same practices, they were supposed to have the, the, the capital sentence over them as well. No more severe than for, than for uh, his own people. And notice that it was also a defensive, protective policy. Okay? You're going to be there. You're going to be in this land. If you leave them alive, they're going to influence you. And their influence will turn you away from me. Now, that's going to become important in a minute because we, we need to see what happened in the New Testament. Okay? But it was a defensive, protective policy. This is the teaching of the Old Testament on evil in summary form, real brief summary form, all right? So let's move to the New Testament. Let's close with the New Testament, and then we're going to sing. All right. The New Testament, we find its forces, the forces of evil. From the Gospels, we find at least two things. There's others we could look at, but we find at least two things. The first thing is we find a personal devil. Now, the world has done its best to obscure this fact, to make it into a cartoon or a joke or to something so silly that nobody could possibly believe in it. Modern, scientific, enlightened people could not believe in a real devil. Whether it's horns and a tail, whether it's some kind of hideous monster, we turn this evil into something that looks so fantastic that nobody could believe there's a literal devil. But the New Testament is unashamed about the fact that Satan appeared to Jesus and tempted him. He's real, and he's a being. Okay, There's an actual Satan, an actual devil. He's an actual personal being. He's not a metaphor. He's not a symbol of all things bad. He's an actual being. Satan, a personal being. And secondly, it reveals to us a whole host of evil spirits that he has at his disposal. Now, we don't know how many there are. We don't know how many there are. Some have suggested, uh, based on passages like Revelation 12, 3 and 4, that when Satan fell way back at the beginning of time, that one-third of the other angels followed him and fell with him. But the scripture doesn't specifically tell us that. It's reading between the lines it's very possible, but it's not certain, okay? We get nothing more than hints of this. What we do know for certain is that, man, when Jesus appeared on the scene, something that wasn't spoken of a whole lot in the Old Testament all of a sudden came out in, in, in full force, and there were demons to be cast out all over the place, and, and, man, all of a sudden, the powers of darkness got exposed and got super active, Right? There was all this satanic activity going on. So a personal devil, a real devil, and hosts of evil spirits at his disposal. Pause one second. How many of you have read screw tape letters? Okay. If you have not, I would encourage you to read it. Because I believe it's a really helpful way to personalize the realm of evil and to see whether it's, a, it's, it's accurate in every detail doesn't matter. It simply shows the fact 
that we human beings are influenced by these forces in ways that we don't recognize always. Ways that we don't recognize. The second thing is that in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? We, we know this passage. We wrestle against principalities and powers. It suggests two things. This passage suggests at least two things when it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The first thing it suggests is that that person that you see in front of you, that you feel like you want to deal with, right? That the first thing is that Satan does use people. All right? Now, this is where I get tempted to stand up and start walking around. I want to emphasize this point as much as I can. Just about every day of your life, in fact, I want to say every day of your life. It's just a matter of to what degree, in what way. But every day of your life, as you walk in and out of life, in every circumstance of life, there are situations being presented to you and people that are being presented to you in which Satan has a will to accomplish for your life and God has a will to accomplish for your life. That this is always the case and it's always going on. God, listen, that, that nasty person, the other, the other day I, I was, um, this is one of those situations where a light turns green and there was a question about who was going first and I started to go and then I, I better let the other person go first and I stopped and just as they went by, I went, sorry, like this, just waved. I, didn't, I just wanted to make sure that they knew I wasn't trying to. And their communication back to me was, they didn't accept my apology. <laughs> they didn't accept my apology, okay? And, and my wave was greeted with their wave. And it was, uh, right? So, so listen, in that moment, Satan has a will for my life. And God has a will for my life. I have not always submitted myself to God's will for my life in similar circumstances. But I'm trying to learn that that person is being driven by things that I don't know anything about. You know, they may have had a bad day. They may be going through something awful. And then it may be worse than that. Please hear this. Because the things that they are going through in their life, especially if they don't have Christ, are being used by Satan to whip them and to whip them and to whip them into a place of misery where they can't help but do anything but share their misery with everybody else. And if I could just take a second and step back and not make everything in the world about me, I would see that their salute back to me had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with them and the powers that are whipping them with the suffering that is going on in their lives. And I would just recognize, Lord, there's a bigger battle. And I might, if I ever got really spiritual and grew up in Christ, I might actually finish my turn and say, Lord, would you bless that person? Would you bring the gospel to them today because they obviously need it? Would you heal whatever's hurting in their lives? Would you, would you come to them in that place that has them so angry? Would you put someone in their lives that can comfort them, can bring the gospel to them? If I ever grew up in Christ and got over myself enough, I would just remember that there's a conflict going on. And in that moment, Satan wants to do something in me and God wants to do something in me. Because Satan is doing something in them and God wants to do something in them. And what I'm here for is not to make life about me, but to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Does that make any sense? We see flesh and blood. Paul tells us it's not about flesh and blood. It's about principalities and powers. You see, Satan often uses people as his tools. That's number one. Satan uses people as his tools. But the second thing is 
that it's really about the powers and the agendas that are behind them. It's not about them, and it's not about me. If, if, if I could have the darkness pulled back from my eyes, I would see the powers behind and the agendas behind. What is Satan trying to accomplish here? What is Satan trying to accomplish here? Right? That, that, that when um, I'm not feeling well, and in a moment of weakness and lacking caution, I say something in a way I shouldn't say it, if my wife can look at me and say, you know, the powers of darkness are trying to work through weakness here and trying to do something. There's a will that Satan has in this matter. And then there's a will that God has in this matter. Whose side am I going to be on in how I respond to this? Right? That these situations are presented to us all the time. That if I make it about me, or if you make it about you, or you make it about your spouse, I promise you Satan has a will for you that's going to end in a lot of hurt. He will. He will. That's what he'll get done. Why? Because he wants to steal, and he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. That's what he wants. So it comes to us to say, yeah, but, but Jesus wants to bring life. And he wants to bring it more abundantly. How do I further that agenda in this situation? So we have, we have these forces, and we have to understand that they're there. By the way, we have a prohibition in the New Testament that is very complicated. And I, this is where I'm going to leave some things a little bit, little bit foggy, okay? I need to do this quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and si through 16, there is no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness. No fellowship between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial. In other words, we need to understand that there are clearly long, drawn lines between good and evil. You do with that whatever you want. But there's no fellowship between these two. There's no fellowship between righteousness and unrighteousness, between light and dark, between Christ and Satan. There's no fellowship between them. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 21, Paul says, don't share in demons. He's talking about the fact that Gentiles would, pagans would offer their sacrifices to idols. And Paul says when they did it, what they didn't know is there was a demon behind that idol. They were sacrificing to idols. And he tells the church, don't participate with demons. Don't share in that. The thing that makes it complicated is that in 1 Corinthians 8, he also says this. Don't you know that food offered to idols is absolutely nothing? It's nothing. If someone serves you, don't ask them, was this offered as a sacrifice to an idol? Just don't even ask. Just eat whatever's put before you. Oh, by the way, if they put it before you and someone says, this food was offered in sacrifice to an idol, then don't eat it. But don't eat it for the sake of the person who told you about it, because obviously their conscience is troubled by it. As far as I'm concerned, it's just food. You know, this would be one of those things that people would look at and say, see there, contradictions in Scripture. Contradictions in Scripture. It's not a contradiction. You want to know what, the, what I think the reality is here? It's something like this. Man, the fact that that food was offered to an idol means nothing. Eat the meat. It's just meat. There's no significance there. But if your conscience bothers you about it, then don't violate your conscience. And if somebody else's conscience bothers them about it, don't damage their conscience. Love them enough to limit your freedom for their sake. The reality is, however, that you can look at that meat and say, I'm not participating in a sacrifice to idols. I don't, there's nothing in that. I'm just going to eat the food. 
then eat the food. But if the thing bothers you that there is an evil present, then don't participate in it because evil's a real thing. Stay separate from it. Stay separate from it. Why this ambiguity? Here's the approach that I would suggest. Here's the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God told his Old Testament people, kill them all. There is one huge difference between them and us, and that is this. They did not have the sacrifice of Christ yet, therefore they did not have the Holy Spirit living within them. You and I do. You and I do. So here's the good news. God doesn't need to protect you by telling you, go around and kill every heathen you come across so that you don't get tainted by their influence. As a matter of fact, to the Corinthians, he said the exact opposite. Here's what he said. He said, if you know of a brother that calls himself a brother and he's participating in some really awful sin, separate yourself from him. Primarily because their loneliness might lead them to repentance. But Paul says specifically, I do not tell you to not have supper with unbelievers who are practicing those sins. Because if you did, you'd have to leave the world entirely. You'd never be, along, you'd never be around anybody, right? Don't do that. You know what the point is? The point is this. God's spirit lives in you, and his power is so strong in you that you can actually be present with evil, and you can influence them and them not influence you. Now, I'm just going to say, say this openly for, as a point of wisdom. If you've got some super weak spot and you just know it, and listen, we all have them. Somebody say amen. amen. And you just know full well, that's not a place I can go. That's not something I can interact with. I'm weak. Just say it openly. I'm weak. I need to keep myself in that area. But listen to this. When some other brother says, yeah, but I can have a meal with that person and it's fine, don't judge them. They may not share your weakness. And the point of the gospel is this, that the gospel is supposed to be carried offensively by us to all people. To all people. You and I, whereas the Old Testament was primarily defensive, Take the land and protect yourself from these people. The New Testament is primarily offensive. It tells us the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. You know what that means? It means that the church is attacking the gates of hell, and the gates of hell are not going to win. It's offensive. It tells us stand and withstand the powers of evil. It doesn't tell us run. Doesn't tell us to get, it tells us to stand in the evil day and to withstand evil. It tells us to resist the devil until he flees. Not us, him. And it tells us that we are supposed to overcome evil with good. We are supposed to be the carriers of good to such a degree that good overcomes evil. Okay? I want to say it this way to close. You decide about Halloween. You decide. Okay? But please hear this. I think we can say these things. Number one, evil is not a joke. It is not a joke. Number two, don't play with it. This is my biggest problem. My biggest problem is not whether you do something or don't do something. My biggest problem is that we entertain ourselves with things we don't know what we're entertaining ourselves with. You know, if we did certain things for the gospel's sake, I'd kind of shrug my shoulders. But when we do it because we're playing games and just enjoying the time, I got some questions. You know why? Because evil's actually evil. It's actually evil. But the third thing is this overcome evil with good. And I don't know what that means for you. Overcome evil with good. Message of the gospel into our world and overcome evil with good. I absolutely believe it means that there are things we cannot participate in.
But I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, boy, I have a hard time doing this. I'm going to close with the example. If at this time of year, you choose in your office to put a candy bowl on your desk because you know everybody's looking for a trick-or-treat, but it's your way of striking up a conversation with someone that might lead to the gospel, I'm not going to tell you you're in sin. I'm going to tell you don't play games with evil. Whatever you do, overcome evil with good. It may be that Christians take a slightly different approach from one another about how certain things are supposed to be done. But if we're all driven by the same gospel spirit to overcome evil with good, there is room for some differences. There's room for some differences. But don't play with evil. Don't play with evil. Don't play with evil. If your conscience tells you, I cannot eat meat offered to an idol, don't eat it. But if your conscience says, whether it's offered to an idol or not, I don't know, I'm just going to eat its meat to me, then eat the meat. Does that make sense? Don't participate in evil. Understand, there is real evil out there. This world's making a joke of it all, making a holiday of it all, making it a celebration of it all. Carry the good news. Carry the gospel. Be a person who's more concerned about overcoming evil with good than exposing evil. Carry good. Identify the evil and then be a gospel bearer. Be a, be a light bearer. Take the gospel into your world. That means you don't participate in certain things? By all means, don't. Don't play with it. Carry the gospel. Carry the gospel. Let's close with this song. If I could invite, boy, I want to say more. I'm going to shut my mouth. I want to be more specific about some things. I'm going to refuse. <laughs>